For Sam Pollard, a director, producer, and picture editor of films such as Style Wars, When the Levees Broke, A Requiem in Four Acts, Four Little Girls, and August Wilson, The Ground on Which I Stand, and for Lillian Benson, picture editor of such films as Get in the Way, The Journey of John Lewis, and And Still I Rise, A Portrait of Maya Angelou, documentary filmmaking proved to be the most powerful form of expression, artistically, personally, and professionally. Coming up during the civil rights movement of the late 1960s and 70s New York, they recognized the documentary film form as a medium that amplified their own voices and talents in telling the story of African Americans. Though their paths crossed on several projects, it was the Peabody and multi-Emmy award-winning Eyes on the Prize Parts 1 and 2, the landmark 14-part documentary series telling the story of the American Civil Rights Movement from 1952 to 1985 that was the most pivotal experience. We had the history of America in our hands, and we had the responsibility to tell it correctly and inclusively and truthfully. It was a, a, was a high mountain. It was a high mountain we had to climb. High mountain, yeah. <laughs> Scary. Scary. Frame by Frame is co-presented by the Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at @postny. The host for today's episode is Goldcrest. I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, introducing you to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today as a celebration of New York's ongoing contribution of the global film community. While Eyes on the Prize received numerous awards, including a Peabody, multiple Emmys, and was nominated for an Academy Award, this was only one of many important contributions Sam Pollard and Lillian Benson have made in their continuing careers in the American documentary and fictional filmmaking scene. Here, Sam Pollard and Lillian Benson describe their rise within the early documentary filmmaking culture for the people of color in early 1970s New York. It was a time when people started to think, who were hiring, started to think differently. People were hired, people of color were hired because they wanted them to go photograph in neighborhoods they didn't want to go in. And so the news people all of a sudden opened up some of the positions to cover the riots. Having the opportunity to be in the room or to be in the field and shoot and do things that were close to you before. I didn't know anybody in film. I come from a fine arts background, and one of my professors in photography class in college asked me whether I was in film, and I said no. And he said, well, you should be, because you have the best sense of sequence I've ever seen. So that kind of gave me intellectual permission to do something I didn't really know anything about. When my uh, professor said, go into film, what's film, you know? Film is what you go to the movie theater to see. But as fate would have it, one of my, my best friend from college had a summer dog walking job for this woman who was an editor. And at the time I was teaching in public school and she said, if you ever decide to leave teaching, let me know. And fortunately, she was not just blowing smoke. So I called her. And to her credit, she helped me get my first couple of jobs. Because I was the fourth assistant, everything had been set up. So I didn't have to learn how to do dailies, do film code. It was all done. 
So all I had to do was pull takes, reconstitute, do sound effects, make leaders. So I didn't have to start from scratch and start the room. So it was actually a good first job for me. It was not the first first, but it was very early. And, and it was on one of those jobs where I met Sam. We were working in the same building. And part of the process was we were doing sound dailies at a Penny Baker's in that building. And he borrowed a splicer because we were, I was on a 35 show. So that is the point at which our paths first crossed. 1968, public television, WNDT, started a film and television workshop after Dr. King's assassination to do exactly what Lillian was saying, to get more people of color, an edit room, out on location, doing sound, shooting, shooting. Three years later, that workshop was still in existence. I was a college student at uh, Baruch College, majoring in marketing, and I was looking for some kind of after-school program, and I went to a counselor, and she told me about this workshop. And I went and had an interview, and I got accepted to the workshop, which was two nights a week, Tuesdays and Thursday nights, and professionals would come in, and they were all people of color then who would come in, and they would teach you. And we were working over at a place, you remember Chuck Stewart, photographer? No. Chuck Stewart, he's a photographer, wonderful pictures of jazz musicians. We used his studio on 44th off of 6, and we learned the craft. And it was a one-year program, and after that one-year program, I was attracted to the editing component. I wasn't comfortable in the field at that time. And they got me a job in 72, the summer of 72, as an apprentice editor on a film titled Ganja and Hess oh, yeah. that was directed by Bill Gunn, all-black cast. that was shot by a gentleman named Jim Hinton. Mm-hmm. And the editor was Victor Konevsky who was this white Jewish guy who had done teaching at that workshop before I had gotten involved. And I was the apprentice for seven months on that film, and I did exactly the same thing Lillian said she was doing. Every day I would come in, reconstitute, put up, make mark leaders, label boxes, you know, and sit at the synchronizer all day, reconstitute, 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 and never said a word, just paid attention. And... After that experience, Victor, <laughs> he took me to lunch and he hired me as a, he said I wasn't good enough to be an assistant. Aww. He hired me, he gave me a title as an apprentice assistant. And I was making 55 bucks a week at the time. But from 73 up till 75, I was his assistant on like about five, six films. And, and he was a very generous, generous editor. He would have me couple of days a week, stop doing my assistant's work after lunch, and make me sit behind him when he was editing on the steam back. And he would explain to me everything. And that was around the same time I met Lillian, because we were working over in Penny, in that building on 45th Street, remember? Mm -hmm. And uh, I went and borrowed a splicer, because she was working at Arena. And the other thing that's really interesting about that connection, Cutting Loose, Jim Lipscomb, that she worked on, Ended up editing, Victor ed, ended up editing a lot of films for Jim after that. <laughs> a lot of films for Jim Lipscomb, and I even edited one for Jim after that. But that was sort of the connection, and me and Lillian met then. And uh, for me, probably 
seeing another person of color in the in the building was like an amazing thing. I said, "Oh shit!" <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I because I hadn't true. seen anybody mm-hmm. else. That's when I got introduced to you know I started doing my homework. I started watching Penny Baker and the Mazels and Ricky Leacock, and I remember going up to Penny Baker's office, and he had had this wonderful little film about a little twenty-minute film about Dave Lambert, who was a part of this jazz group, Lambert Hendricks and Ross. And I asked him if I could see the film, and he put it up on the projector. And he played it for me, and I always yeah, remember that. Yeah, Penny was, he Penny was, a, was great. He was a great guy. And he is great. Yeah, and it was sort him. of. It was sort of, you know, it was upright movieolas and steam becks and sixteen millimeter film and splicing and it was it was it was energized, you know, and I was excited. I mean I wanted I was determined to be an editor. It was a real determination on my part to be an editor. The first film I edited when when I was in that film and television workshop. We had to shoot the Lincoln Center buildings, exteriors, just to create a little sort of one-minute montage. And I was given the job. I was the AC, and I was also made the editor. And I was in the edit room the first night, working on an upright movieola. I was terrified of it going, <laughs> film breaking. And I spliced all these shots together, and I ran them through the movieola, and I didn't like the order of the shots, so I took them out of the movieola, put them on the synchronizer, switched the shots around, and then when I spliced them back together and ran them again in the movieola, it was like I thought a miracle had happened. I said, oh shit, I created something. And that for me was the beginning. That was when I said, wow, editing, this is a creative thing. You know, because I had never done anything creative before, not in my head, and that was creative for me. And that was when I knew I wanted to be an editor. I was 20, 22. I want to be an editor. I didn't know how you became an editor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I nobody to be an tells editor. you. Nobody tells you. Yeah. One of the things that Sam has pointed out is that usually there's someone who helps you, and sometimes they help you by thwarting you as well. Yeah. I did not get into the NET uh, training school, although I did apply. But I met Cliff Frazier. Yeah, Cliff. Um, who helped me get on a job where I got paid a little bit of money with Rafi Kamal, who was one of the associate producers who's now a producer. It was Fred and Felicidad Dukes, who were the producer, director, husband-wife team. And I was a PA on one of their films. So that was my location experience. And it helped me understand location was not for me. That was after I had done this work with Riva Freifeld. And then somebody I knew from a job I had teaching was now an assistant, camera assistant, on this feature directed by Woody King Jr. called The Long Night. But the editor on that was Joe Staten, and he hired me to assist at night. And I was still working on this production PA job. And he offered to get me into the union, which was huge. And so I said, I'm, I'm, I'm gone. In part because I found that production was not for me. I would rather be by myself, frankly. And so I s- assisted with this. Then we worked in on a series, Vegetable Soup, which was for the New York State Education Department. And it was an educational series encouraging kids to explore diversity and to be more tolerant. Sam worked on another part of that. 
Yeah, but we get cross paths too. I mean, we cross paths a lot. Yeah. Because when she was working for John Carter, I was using his editing space at night to edit little short films. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. When you're working at John's. Uh, okay. Because I had, after I had finished with Victor's. Yeah. The first time, when I finished Gajian Heads, I went around 1600 Broadway with my resume, went to every floor with my one film on my resume, <laughs> trying to get a job. And I knocked on one editing door, and lo and behold, these two black guys opened the door. And it was the first other black guys in the building I had seen. It was Kevin Lee. Oh, yeah. He was yeah. George's assistant, yeah, and George yeah. Bowers, who had had a you know substantial career by that point yeah. as a feature film editor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were doing... Uh, George was editing Countdown to Cassini, Ossie Davis's film. And uh, George saw saw that I was ambitious, and he called me like two weeks later and said that Gordon Parks' son, David Parks, was trying to do a little documentary about the three black mayors at the time, Coleman Young, Tom Bradley, and Maynard Jackson. And they asked me if I would edit it. Mm But they didn't have a lot of money, and it was to edit at night. I was doing the same thing, Lillian. I would work as an assistant in the day, and then I would take anything to learn to edit at night. So they hired me to edit, and we were editing at John Carter's. Remember on 55th Street Mm -hmm. and 8th Mm -hmm. Avenue with Mm -hmm. the prostitutes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so I was editing at John Carter's at night. And Lillian was over there. I don't know when you were there, but you were there. I was there in the 80s. Yeah, 80s. 80s. So you know, yeah, yeah. so that's when I was doing editing over there at nights. I would, I was so so ferocious and ambitious. I would be assisting Victor in the day. I'd be cutting NYU student films at night or something for somebody like David Parks at night because mm-hmm. I was going to be an editor by hook mm-hmm. or by crook. <laughs> no, and it, it, there's no straight path. There's no, at least certainly not then. And I think for people of color, it's different. Yeah, um, I think it's different. But but you know, being getting into the union, finding someone who who would teach me things, teach me the craft, and also the behavior in the cutting room was uh, was critical. And one of the things you know, like Sam was saying about his experience with the Lincoln Center exteriors, sometimes uh, Joe Staten had more lucrative work. And he'd give me something to do. And there was one film, a short film, for the, again, for the state. But this was a documentary. And I had some structure in mind. And it wasn't working. And I ended up breaking down the entire film and putting it back in the bin by subject and starting over. And that was actually probably the first really brave act of, of my career because it wasn't working. And I didn't try to move it around. I just said, new canvas. And it turned out fine. I did that without showing it to Joe because I knew that it wasn't working. And so when I showed it to him, it was working better. As far as my internal understanding of editing when why why I try to be this thing it was the most fun I ever had doing anything creative and so I thought well okay if you really feel this good then this is what you should do the only person I I knew and I didn't meet her until later 
only woman of color who was an editor, was Madeline Anderson. And Madeline had worked at NET. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, I'm sure she taught your classes or appeared at some of them. She ended up producing because she couldn't get far enough. She kept hitting that glass ceiling. But she was uh, a colleague of the woman who got me my first job, Pat Powell. And basically she said, well, you know there's another one. You know there's another black woman who does this, Lillian. And so she was encouraging. And that was what I needed to know that somebody was on the path. And then I met, you know, other people like George and Joe Staten and then John Carter and then uh, Kevin Lee. And we actually only worked together on a project, one project, the Massachusetts 54th Colored Regiment for American Experience. But he was around and he was supportive. And I guess that's what was the best part of it. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the politics, you know, I always say to people who in, in, in the business of editing, Lillian will, will definitely concur with this. Listen, as, as, as people who edit, and we work with lots of different directors, a lot of the times it's not just about your talent, you know, when you're in the editing room. You get hired for your talent, but it's also about negotiating the very difficult sort of human interactions the interaction. Sometimes you work with directors who you don't even want to be with outside the editing room. Sometimes you work with directors who you love to be with, but who you don't think got a lot of talent. <laughs> sometimes you, sometimes you work with directors who you say. When I was a young editor, I was I was much more difficult in terms of saying because I had been sort of brainwashed by Victor to believe that as a documentary editor, just give me the footage and leave me alone, and I'll make your film. You know, and if you get in the way, you're a problem. So, so as a young editor, I was I was very difficult and very obstinate and and very ego driven. That you know, I could make everybody's film. Now, as I got older, and and politically, that that can kill you in the business. You know, I was telling somebody the other day when I was working for Victor because I I used to go off back and forth. I would work at Victor's for a few years. I would leave and I would come back. I would leave. I would come back. But when I first started out, I was editing a little silly film, a little half-hour film about the Southern Magazine for a producer named Tony Silver. And at a certain point, I had cut this montage to this thing called the Chattahoochee Raft Race. <laughs> you know? Okay. You know. I don't know the song. Yeah, but it was a Chattahoochee Raft Race. So I cut, I cut this montage, and I thought... You know, I thought I had done a brilliant job. <laughs> and Tony comes in, and he had problems with it. He said, this didn't work, that didn't work. Here I am, 26, 27, and I say to him, I'm not changing it. I'm not changing it. I like it. It's, it works. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, in reality, <laughs> Tony should have went to Victor and said, fucking fire Sam, man. <laughs> he got a lot of nerve <laughs> telling me he's not going to change it. But because Victor was my godfather, he protected me, and I didn't get fired. I should have got fired, but I didn't get fired. And there's always that dynamics in the editing when you're working with people. It's always the political thing, because every time I used to walk, and still today, if I walk in the editing room, basically, I'm always, my brain is saying, I got to prove myself. I got to show them I'm a good editor, you know? So I come in at 9 o'clock. 
You know, I work till one. I never get up. I take that hour lunch. I go back. I work till six or seven just to show them I'm not a slacker. I'm not lazy. You know, I'm a hard worker. I'm determined. Now, tell you the truth, after fucking 40 years, I don't, shouldn't have to do that. But I still got that mindset because when I was a young assistant, being the only black person in the room, I would always say, they're looking at you to see if you're going to fail. You know, I mean, the first few jobs, I remember the first little film I cut about these um, people who dress up for Mardi Gras in New Orleans, Black Indians in New Orleans with Jim Hinton. I was the editor, I was the assistant editor, I was the sound editor. <laughs> I did everything. The night before the mix, I mixed with Emil's, Emil Narona, yeah, yeah, you know? And I swear to you, at midnight, the eight hours before the mix, I was working at Jim's place on 54th. I broke down in tears. I was crying. I just said, I can't make it. I had all this, had put all this weight on me. I was stressed out. I called a buddy of mine who was an assistant. We went to Victor's place. And I made, I, I got through the mix. But halfway through that goddamn mix, Emil says, maybe Sam, this is not right for you. Maybe you shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel like, maybe you're not up to this. I couldn't believe that. Mm-hmm. I said, what? In my head, I didn't say anything out loud, but I said, I'm going to show this guy. I'm going to make it as an editor. I'm going to make it. So it's always that dynamics where people would underestimate you because they say, well, you know, he's a little black guy. You know, he wants to be an editor. She's a girl. Yeah, you know. She's from, she's from, yeah, Yeah. she's working class. Yeah, you know. So you always, that was always in your head. But there's that politics always, that dynamics that you fight with all the, and you have to, you have to, you know, I always said you always had to work work really hard. You had to do 150%, you know. And that was sort of the mindset now. It's like, but it still exists in some ways. The other week, a producer, an editor of mine, an editor friend of mine called me, and she's, this other producer said to her, I'm looking for an editor of color. I just can't find anybody. And I emailed her back. I said, you should tell Jenna... That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's my list. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so many of us yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. There's Sandra Christie. There's Kim Chisholm. There's Louis Erskine. There's Lillian Benson. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many of us now. You, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, and I was told also by a Japanese-American director friend, his mother said the same thing, but he didn't get mad at her where my mother used to say this, and I would get mad. She said, smarter, better, faster. That's it. You have to be smarter, better, better, faster. And there are many people, and I don't know what it's like to be anything but an African-American woman born in a certain time, in a certain place, in a particular profession. There are many people who have helped me who championed me, most importantly, Jackie Shearer. I was 39 years old before anyone told me I was terrific. She told me, you have no idea how good you are. And I kind of said, poo-poo, you know, and she said, no, you have no idea how good you are. And this was on eyes, eyes too. Now, other people had been praising me and, you know, but not everybody, and they're not always people who don't look like you. Sometimes the people who look like you are naysayers as well. So, you know, 
you 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 can't know, but there is the voice. And when you walk in uh, after so many years' experience, is it like the shadow residue that's there from an old print that should be gone? I don't know. I can't. I can't say that. But most of the time, people, you don't know until they until they show you. I, you know, I, I was on a, a show, Big Blue Marble, which is the one that really got me grounded as an editor because every two weeks I had a new sequence to do. I started out as like the junior person doing next time on Big Blue Marble and this week on Big Blue Marble. And on all the little pieces nobody wanted to do and I kind of worked my way up. And this was after doing a lot of industrials. But every two weeks, anything anybody wanted, anything anybody didn't want to do, give her this this segment. And I was there for two and a half years. And I was very, very good because of the Verite background at, at syncing things that where the the, the marker wasn't there or it, was, or it was hard to see by lip syncing or finding the little light somewhere in the picture because that's how I started. That's how I started. So I had a, a particular skill set which was valuable. And, and to this day I can lip sync in, in, a, in a minute because that was what you had to learn how to do if they missed the slate in the field on Verite. And you had to get the sound. So, but I, I don't. I, I Yvonne ba- Brathwaite Burke says you can't change people's hearts so easily. That's why there there are laws. That's how you make the change. And the cutting room is no different than uh, uh, America. Probably the the first pivotal project for me was doing that Black Indians of New Orleans for Jim Henson. It's the first film I cut, really, by myself. I mean, I hate to watch it. I can't stand looking at it, but it's the first one I cut. I think the next pivotal project for me was I had gotten gotten to work with George Bowers as his assistant on a couple of documentaries. And he had said to me around 76, 77, you really should get into features, man. You know, this doc thing is so-so. You should really do features, you know? So he recommended me to be interviewed to work on Ilya Kazan's The Last Tycoon. But I would have to take a step back. I had been an assistant editor, and that one little film I edited, I was still assisting, though. But I would have to go back and be an apprentice on The Last Tycoon. And it was in sound, sound editing. But George said, you know, that'd be smart because you might get, you know, you'll get bumped up to be an assistant. So I took the job. Because it was a Hollywood film, yeah. you know, Kazan, yeah, yeah. Richie Marks was editing. Yeah. <laughs> but after two weeks of sitting in the room, reconstituting again, after which I hadn't done in like two years or something, mm-hmm. I was miserable. Yeah. But then on top of it, after three weeks, since I had reconstituted everything so well, there was nothing else to, nothing else to reconstitute, <laughs> they let me go. Because <laughs> with, with, the, with the proviso that they might hire me back, you know, when they got to do the, the actual sound editing, because I was just this reconstituting picture. So I was in my apartment saying, boy, what a mistake was this, this is terrible. And Victor called me, 
and he was getting ready to do a documentary about the Eastern horse world, dressage riding and carriage riding and stuff, verite doc, and he asked me if I would be the second editor. So I'm thinking, should I take that job working with Victor on this doc, or should I just hold out for the last tycoon? So I finally decided after sort of two or three days of rolling it around in my brain to, to go work just crazy about horses the name of the film. And that was a great experience. Great experience. I mean, it was one of those weird things that two weeks after I got on Just Crazy About Horses, they did call me back for The Last Tycoon, mm -hmm. but I said I was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then probably for me, the next big pivotal moment was I had, George had went out to L.A. and directed a couple of films. He stopped editing. He went out to L.A. Yeah. And he got a film called Body and Soul for Canon Pictures, a remake of with an all-African-American cast of the John Garfield film, boxing movie, and he asked me to come out to L.A. to cut that. You know, I had been, I had done some vegetable soups for him. You remember they used to do those mm -hmm, little short mm -hmm. pieces? Yeah. I edited a couple little short pieces for George by then, yeah. and he, he knew I was very ambitious. So I went out to L.A., and that film was horrible. <laughs> it was a piece of junk. I worked hard, though. I worked hard on every cut. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, it was that, it was that phrase? You can't turn a sow's ear into a silk purse? Yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't so pivotal. What was pivotal was as I was finishing the job, George says, you know, St. Clair Bourne is doing a documentary about the blues. Now, I had seen St. Yeah, over at yeah. 639th Avenue. Yeah. You know, and I was always impressed with this yeah, big yeah. black guy who was uh -huh. a producer. I said, who's this guy? Yeah, yeah. And he said, St. Clair Bourne was doing the doc, and he wanted looking for an editor. Yeah. And he had recommended me to St. Yeah. And that was extremely yeah, yeah, pivotal yeah. for me because St. became like yeah. a big brother to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, it was just every, in his presence every day was just wonderful for me. Mm -hmm. And just in terms of understanding myself in terms of being a black person of color, working on films about our people, it was a very empowering experience. So that was probably the most pivotal thing to happen to me in the early 80s, 1981. Uh, this is a, a, what, again, the small world I mentioned, Woody King Jr., that featured The Long Night. St. Clair was the producer. That's right, he was. And that's when I first met him, although we, I did not have a, a close or long-term relationship with him. We knew each other, you know, off and on, and we'd see each other at festivals and things like that. But I, I did learn, and this was a choice, I wanted to learn fiction. I'd done a few things with Joe Staten, uh, assisting, and he recut the cult comedy Smile Orange. Although Benson was now an editor, she wanted to learn more about fiction editing and was willing to take a step back to assist New York feature editor John Carter. And I asked him whether he would consider training me for fiction. So I learned certain things. Every teacher is different, and some teachers are generous, and some teachers aren't. But you learn in any, any, any event. So I did a number of mostly independent films with him and worked uh, assisting. I never got bumped up to cut, which was my intention and my and the unspoken condition of working that way, but it never happened, so then that was done. But I did get to work with Gordon Parks on 
on uh, on a film, and that was great. And I met a couple of actors uh, through there, one of whom I have uh, reconnected with in Los Angeles, who was in uh, one of one of the films. I think it was in the film that yeah, it was in the film that Gordon directed, Solomon Northup's Odyssey, and it was the first film that Avery Brooks was in. And so when people talk about there was no story of Solomon Northup before 12 Years a Slave, that's not true. And it was not by a nobody. It was by directed by Gordon Parks. Um, so people have short memories. And it's not ignorance, I don't think. But in any case, I also worked on Charlotte Fortin's Mission, and there was a third one, oh, the Hemingway miniseries, Assisting, and that was the last day. And his and John directed a, um, a horror feature, and I assisted that on that. But one of the things that happened working in that building on 55th Street was I also met John So, who is Korean-American, documentarian, but also did a lot of Hollywood work. He's the one who recommended me for a documentary in Los Angeles once I moved there. And he and John Carter were my sponsors for American Cinema Editors when I became a member. So, you know, there's good things in everything. Sometimes the situations teach you difficult things and teach you what you can, number one, withstand, and number two, make you not want to go there again. You recognize when people have the best interests for you, and it varies from time to time. And they might be able to help someone else and not help you at that time in their lives. So what I try to do is to learn from every difficulty. I mean, uh, Linda Marmelstein was the producer on the Hemingway miniseries, and she was fantastic. And she was very, very supportive and very... If there is such a thing as being colorblind, she was. But I only got to work with her on one project. I wish I could have worked with her on more. I, I think, you know, initially for me it was uh, the projects that I got attached to were projects that I thought that I would have an opportunity to edit. That was initially the, the, the goal, to edit. After I met Saint, it was more wanted to be involved with projects that was about our people and our history that were very important to me. And that's when I did those series of films with St. Langston Hughes and The Black and the Green. So that started to change my thinking about the kind of films I wanted to work on and edit. By the time I got to wanting to do be a producer, you know, it was sort of basically the attitude like a lot of New York documentary editors have that we basically know how to make films better than the producers who bring them in. And it got to that point where I didn't want to... I would look around and see the editors who were older than me who would always be complaining about, I worked all this, I did all that, I don't get any recognition. I've worked, you know, my fingers to the bone. I've sat here and restructured the whole film. And, you know, the director gets all the glory. So I started to think to myself... Do I want to get to that point where I'm going to be that cynical and that upset? So I was doing my second tour of duty at 321 Contact. I had done a tour of duty there in 1979. I was doing my second tour of duty, and the young lady who was my assistant, a woman named Meredith Woods, she had just come off of Eyes 1, and she said one day we were in the editing room, 
at the Children's Television Workshop, and she said that uh, Henry Hampton and was looking for a producer. They had lost a producer of color. They were looking for a producer, and she said, you should really try out for it. So I initially said, really? And I was hesitant, but then I, I guess I said, okay. So I called Henry and made an appointment and went to Boston, had, was interviewed by Henry, and got hired to work as a co-producer. They had the, as Lillian remembers, it was the salt and pepper teams. One black producer, one white producer. It was one, what, 12? One female, one, one male. One male, that's right. So it was Jackie Shearer and Paul Steckler. Mm -hmm. It was you and me Sheila. and Sheila Bernard. It was Terry Rockefeller and Louis Messiah and initially Carol Blue and Jim and Carol Blue. Jim Deveni, but then became Jim Deveni and Davis. Davis Lysick. Yeah. So we were the salt and pepper teams. And, and each, um, uh, and there were two female editors and two male editors. That's right. It was Lillian. One and white, one black. Right. Lillian, Chuck, Betty. And, who and Thomas Ott. That's right. Thomas Ott. So, <laughs> yeah. So we, we, I got hired and uh, that was, that was an education because mm -hmm. I learned that uh, <laughs> it wasn't so easy being a producer. <laughs> it wasn't easy. You know, in terms of, you know, it's one thing to be able to, to complain and say, I got all this footage, I got all these interviews, I got to make something. But then to be on the other end of the spectrum and have to figure out wh how to get the footage, who to interview, mm -hmm. how to tell the story. How to get them to talk. How to get them to talk. That was like, oh, this is being a producer means. So it was uh, it was a real uh, sort but of it's also the pro producing at the highest level. It was not just producing. No. It was producing at the highest yeah, level. Yeah, because we, we were, we were, Lillian, can, Lillian definitely can attest to this. We were basically in the situation where we had to follow in the footsteps of a series, the first part of the series, that had got unanimous praise. Mm -hmm. It had been just loved. Everybody looked critically acclaimed award-winning, <laughs> we got to follow in that, sh that series's uh -huh. footsteps. Uh -huh. Eyes on the prize, too. Woo! And uh, it won every single, um, it duplicated every single award that the first one had won, with one exception. No Academy Award. Uh, no Academy Award nomination, because Henry didn't submit in time. Henry was right. choking, because he wanted to submit Sam's film, 205. It was not ready. 201 was ready, 204 was ready. So there were two shows, um, Jackie Shearer's episode with Paul Steckler, Jim Devinney's episode. Mm -hmm. I said, they're ready to go, you can get it in the theater. I said, flip a coin, Henry. I said, we're all ready to go with the coin toss. And he, he procrastinated and missed it. So mm -hmm. w we did fine. Yeah. And uh, the show that Sam was, on was about uh, Muhammad Ali, yeah. among other things. Yeah. So it was. Uh, but it was a, a it was a high mountain. It was a high mountain mm -hmm. we had to climb. Mm -hmm. High mountain, high yeah. Mountain. <laughs> Scary. Scary, you know. But you know, this was a part of that trajectory that you know, for me, it was like, from that point on, I mean, <laughs> I learned to be a producer. You know, I didn't stop editing, but I started to produce more. You know. Mm -hmm. We had the history 
of America in our hands, and we had the responsibility to tell it correctly right. and um, inclusively and truthfully. So there was a tremendous responsibility, and the producers and the teams rose to the occasion, and and we had a lot of support in terms of writing and stock footage research and things like that, great camera people, but ultimately it was produced by the two producers, and Henry's name was on it at the very end, but it was Sam's name and Sheila's name that came first, or Paul's name and Jackie's name that came first, and my name came second on their shows, and Betty's came second on their shows. The thing that's always good about making these docs, you know, is you learn so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is like, it's like an education. Every time you have an opportunity to do a historical doc, Mm -hmm. it's an education. You're learning stuff, you know, and and it, if you have any kind of curiosity about life, documentaries are invaluable because you just learn. You can learn so much about anything when you get involved with a doc. I just, I'm working on a doc now about voter suppression. I'm learning stuff that, you know, I know some of it, but now I'm really getting into the weeds of it, which is always to me, it's like great educational tools to me to learn and to, then to, make, to put it, that material and make it into a film, hopefully, that can be engaging. And, and change people. And change people. And change yeah, people or change know. the uh, immediate situation because sometimes these films provide insight and and sometimes they're a call to action, but sometimes they just provide insight into yourself and then you can make the individual change and then make the collective change. Certainly documentaries were the beginning of my understanding uh, the importance of language Mm. because with narration and some people are really really good at it is so key and you don't have to have too much you just have to have the right amount and that can then just rotate you just a little bit so you look at the scene a little differently what comes first the script or the acting or the editing or the directing or but the words if they're done right just lifts everything and that's what I I understood I guess it was working on eyes when and listening to Steve Steve Fair. Fair was the senior writer on that and he would help you uh, help the producer directors with their scripts and and, help, language. and, yeah. and the language yep. and there's a line and as I, I you know last time I talked to Steve I said this to him this was on the Henry Ford film that John Els did we were having trouble with the sequence, and it was a sequence that included Henry Ford being his, you know, patriarchal, elitist, crazy self with Thomas Edison in this place in Dearborn, Michigan. And it's, uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the place, but it was like a fairyland, mm-hmm. you know, an homage to the past. And we kept struggling. It was Terry Rockefeller, John Ellis, myself, and Steve Fair, and I think the associate producer, Leslie Farrell. 
and nobody could get it. And Steve at one point said, well, I don't know what the rest of it is, but I think it should start, this was a place where time was measured one horse at a time. Holy Toledo. And it was this little carriage going by, and it just opened it up for John to write the rest of it. And, and I thought, everybody knew that that was it. Everybody knew. And it was, for me, because I wasn't always in those writing situations, a moment where I understood it could just come from the working of the mind, just the way, basically the way I work the B-roll or Sam works the B-roll to get it right, just mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. is the way some people work the words. Mm -hmm. And it was a really uh, a, a parallel for me. You just look at it, you move it, you know, look, the what, I need I need another shot here, and I, I just put a black space, and I know it starts with this, it goes to two more things, and it goes to that, and you work it down, or sometimes you don't know what the first shot is, right. but you know what you have isn't the first shot. Right. But that's the the creative working, and and that's almost it's it's not intangible, but it is intangible. We do have to keep, you know, changing the canvas, adding this. Uh, it's not like building the foundation of a house. You can't mess with that. And maybe the structure of the film is the foundation of the house. But there are certain things you can keep working until it's absolutely right. And or t and or, or you accept that you can't make it better than what you with what you have. When I got into film. As an editor, the thing that changed for me in the early years was the fact that I was a documentary editor and it was this ability to take footage that didn't have a script or actors or storylines and you shaped the storyline, you figured it out in the editing. Now, I did edit my first feature in 78, which I don't usually talk about, but today I will. It was a zombie movie. <laughs> it was absolutely terrible. but. The, the thing that I brought to that was because I'd done documentaries with footage that didn't have any rhyme or reason. This material from this zombie movie was so bad, I had to create like I was doing a doc, you know. So by the time I got to the features in the late 80s when it started with Spike and Mo' Better Blues, I had enough experience as an editor to feel confident. In, in all honesty, I probably felt more confident cutting the feature stuff than I cut documentaries because... I had a script, I had an actor, I had performance. Either the performance was good, or it was mediocre, or it was bad. And you would have to figure out how to make it work. But I had it there, I didn't have mm -hmm. to come up with, oh, how do I, what's the storyline for this verite footage? Mm -hmm. What do mm -hmm. I have to figure mm -hmm. out? Mm -hmm. So I used to find it much easier. The challenge to me with the fiction editing was basically having to make the changes for the director who saw something different in the sequence that you put together. That was a big challenge for me. And the thing I liked the most working on the features, quite honestly, was when Spike, specifically, would shoot a scene like it was a doc. Mm. He would shoot just like footage. And then say, well, the script had 
the wives talk about their husbands, like mm-hmm. in Jungle mm-hmm. Fever. Mm-hmm. He had shot that with three cameras. Mm-hmm. He had given each, he had given Lynette McKee an opening line and an end line, and everything else was improv. I love cutting that sequence. It was like cutting mm-hmm. the dock. One of the best in the movie. Yeah, I said, ah, this is like shaping it. So when the other stuff, I got the other stuff, the dialogue scenes that was already scripted, it was just basically being meticulous. Mm -hmm. The thing you have to remember about cutting the fiction films is you have to be more meticulous about the craft of being very specific when to make the cut, when to find it, go to the two shot, when to go to the master, when to think about the dynamics of the rhythm of the scene, Mm -hmm. you know. That's what you got to think about for me. When I'm cutting the doc, as I'm shaping the story, because I always say, as the as a doc filmmaker, as a doc editor, we are basically the surrogate directors. It's our job to help sh- find the story and shape the story and give it the arc. You know, we got We got to create it. We got to find. As Lillian just said, we have to go through that footage and find those moments. Ah, that's gonna. Ooh, that's ooh, that's nice. Ooh, I can make that. These five shots come together. You know, you got the script. This, you know, you put a scene together that's based on the script, and you look at it and you say, oh, that doesn't quite work. Oh, I have to find a different take. I got to do that. It's a different kind of thinking. Yeah. You know, it's a different kind of thinking. But I love. You know, I like cutting the features, but for me, after a certain point, I find it boring. Mm-hmm. The only, you know, I would. I said to somebody. If I had wanted to make a lot of money, and Lillian just hit it, I would have went to L.A. and just cut features. Because I would make money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't make money. I never made money cutting docks. But you're going to make a lot of money if you get a good feature, if you're in the union. I mean, that's 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 where all my retirement money is coming from, from those features I cut. (laughs) You know, listen. I'm very fortunate that I work with Spike on seven films, right? some of them I really like. Some of them had some good stuff in it, you know. It's probably the one that the two that I like the most are Docs, Four mm-hmm. Little Girls, and When the Levees Broke. Yeah, those two to me are like yeah, and they yeah. were Docs. Yeah, I like the features, the dramatic films, but those two Docs, if I had to say of all of those films I I worked I edited for Spike, which which mm-hmm. will stand the test of time? When the Levees, when the levees Broke, broke the levees and broke. Four Little Girls. Mm-hmm. When I was in the middle of Eyes, I was living in the back bay section and, and uh, Spike was finishing up. He had just finished Do the Right Thing and he was getting pre-production. He was getting ready to go into pre-production for, pre-production for Mo' Better Blues. And Barry Brown, who was his guy, had just gotten a feature to direct so he wasn't gonna be available to cut it. And, his, and this is the other thing that Lillian mentioned. Basically, in this business we're in, it's all about relationships and who you meet along the path, right? So his production manager, who was working on Do the Right Thing, was Preston Holmes. Mm -hmm. And Preston and I had worked together on Vegetable Soup. So we had known each other. So when Spike was looking for an editor, Preston recommended me. Says, Sam's a jazz guy, he loves jazz, you know, and Mm -hmm. and he's cut docs. So Spike called me about taking a job. Initially, I turned it down. But then again, the network, the journey of people you meet, Saint was doing making to do the right thing. Oh, and, and Saint S- said, hire him. And Saint said, you should hire Sam. So now Spike's got Preston Holmes 
and St. Clair recommended me. So the second time he calls me, you know, I still waffled because I was in the middle of eyes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then I met Spike at the Vineyard on Labor Day. And I always say this. We had a half-hour meeting at Oak Bluffs in a little coffee shop. I think Spike said two sentences in that whole half hour. I just basically talked myself into taking the job. I talked myself into it. Mm. Then I went to Henry. Mm -hmm. And Henry, you know, he's a celebrity Mm. hound. (laughs) I said, Henry, Spike wants me to cut his own. Henry says, you can't turn it down. (laughs) So that's how it started. And so everybody went full steam ahead to lock his show. That's right. Mm. Because Henry wanted to allow him to go. (laughs) That's right. But I I do agree that, um, I agree that When the Levees Broke is is a a phenomenal film. And that fiction is different in that it calls upon different parts of you. That's right. And in documentary, the best ones, you serve the truth, the absolute truth, as much as we know at the moment in time we make the film. And we're not so, uh, we're not, we don't see too much else. Where in fiction, it's, it's what is already comes to you, and then you start to look for the nuance or the, you know, with, we were talking about uh, Lynn Whitfield before, and how she doesn't mess her lines up. Uh, but there are moments when she looks a certain way, there's something in her face, in her eyes, or way she has her head. You say, that's the take. So that's a minor. That's not about truth. That's about performance. And yeah. it's, it's just a different, a different level, different feeling, different. And sometimes it's where you are in your life. I always wanted to work in fiction, mm-hmm. but because I met documentary people, and because I had a kind of bookish nature, I stayed in documentaries. And, you know, it, it, it was fine. It's an interesting thing. When I critique, you know, I, I see lots of people's films uh, to ask to consult or critique. And I'm going to always try to find something positive to say about the material. Even if, it, even if at the end of the, my summation I say it's not quite working, but I'm going to try to find something positive. I also believe, since I produce and then direct more now, and since I'm an editor, I'm tremendous, as you know this, Isabel, I'm, I'm, tremendously, I'm a tremendous believer in being respectful to the editor who's working in the room and not, you know, and not coming in there with this whole attitude that, that is not doing what I like and I'm going to make sure they do what I want. I mean, I'm, I'm tremendously respectful of that. I also believe that um, it's very important to understand that we're in a business where the relationships and the collaborative process is vitally important to make a good film. That no man is an island. No one should come in there and mm-hmm. think that I can only make this film, nobody else can make it. You know, to me, that's, that's a downside to making a really good film. You have to be able to bring all your tools that you have to make that film really work. And uh, I just think that's important. And 
I hope and I look for that when I'm working with people, you know, that they want to be collaborators. That is not about saying, look how great I am. I, I just, to me, it's like <laughs> life is too short to go through that stuff anymore. It's just too short, you know. So I just, you know, I just, I still enjoy the process. I still love making films. I still love editing films, you know. It's really interesting to keep doing it. It's 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 really interesting. It's never boring. It's frightening sometimes, exhausting, but it's never boring. Never boring. The other thing that's important to me too is to take all this knowledge or experience that I have to give it to other people, you know, to you know, just to be generous with it because I ain't gonna be here much longer. Just to pass that stuff on. And hopefully you'll find someone who will take it and, and it'll help them find their own path and elevate themselves. This episode of Frame by Frame is co-produced by Isabel Sojourney and Ben Taylor. The audio engineer for today's session was Tristan Bayless of Gold Coast. Stay tuned for the next episode of Frame by Frame featuring picture editor Jay Rabinowitz, sound editor Bob Hine, and re-recording mixer Tony Vellante talking about their collaborations with Jim Jarman. Time is through the way.